Welcome to Herb W. Morgan's Slaying Bulls and Bears, a podcast about economics, markets, investing, politics, and profit. Every Monday, in less than 20 minutes, Wall Street portfolio manager Herb W. Morgan distills the complex and complicated into the simple and sensical. Here's Herb now. Good morning. It is Monday, July 10th, 2023. I'm Herb Morgan, Senior Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer here at Cantor Managed ETF Portfolios. This is my weekly economic and market commentary for the week beginning today, July 10th, 2023. As a reminder, you can follow me intra-week, if I have anything to say, on Twitter at ETF underscore strategist or on LinkedIn, just Herb Morgan. The presentation you are about to see and or hear is designed to be used by both investors and financial advisors, but each are expected to make their own investment decisions. Nothing contained in the presentation should be treated as investment advice. There are no recommendations for the purchase or sale of any securities. It is purely for informational purposes. Well, after one heck of a first six months, we started the first week of the second half or the third quarter with a down week pretty much across the board. S&P 500 was due to give back something at some point, and that's exactly what happened. Gave up about 1%. Small cap stocks did a little worse, about one and a third. International markets down about 2%. Emerging markets held in there, though, only down about six-tenths of a percent. But interest rates went higher last week, sending the bond market lower. Look at this, the worst performing index on the screen, anyhow was the 20 plus year treasury index down about 3.44% as the US 10 year treasury yield exceeded 4% for the first time in quite a number of years. Economic data was mixed last week and mixed the way it's been all year. Poor data in manufacturing, strong data in labor and services. Let's start with manufacturing. We got both ISM and S&P Global's manufacturing PMIs for the month of June, starting with S&P Global, fell from 48.4 to 46.3, right along, right in line with estimates. April was the only month above 50, and it was so marginally so that we can easily say we've been in a manufacturing recession since October of last year. That is consecutive months of decline in manufacturing with the exception of October, where I say it was essentially flat. Taking a look at a competitor metric from ISM, Institute for Supply Management, they say in June, manufacturing PMI fell from 46.9 to 46.0, well below the estimate of 47.1. Last time this metric was above 50 was October of 22. It's readings like these in the manufacturing sector that have led me to make the call that you all know that I've made that we've been in this low-grade recession since March. But the service sector data keeps coming in better than expected. Maybe, maybe we'll get to the point where it turns out we skid, skidded through a manufacturing recession while the service sector held in strong. Within that manufacturing sector, new orders were up a bit, but still in decline. So it's a higher reading, but below 50, meaning they're in contraction. And employment went into contraction there as well. Moving on to the services sector, starting with S&P Global, above 50, meaning expansion. 
And of course, manufacturing is about 15% of the U.S. economy, and the services sector runs about 85% of the U.S. economy. So here, falling from 54.9 to 54.4, still expansion, still good expansion, one, two, three, four. The question becomes, is the service sector going to lead the manufacturing sector higher, or is the manufacturing sector going to lead the service sector lower? We don't know. ISM also reported a spike in the services sector, rose from 50.3, which was really close to moving into contraction, to 53.9, well ahead of estimate of 51.2. New orders strong, business activity extremely strong, and employment back into expansion mode. And of course, we're going to get to, in a moment, the two employment reports that we got last week for the month of June. Before we do though, let's look at factory orders. May factory orders up three tenths of a percent, a little below expectations. And taking out transportation, they're actually down five tenths of a percent. This sort of plays into what we're seeing on the manufacturing side of things. Data on construction spending in May said it was up nine tenths of a percent, well ahead of expectations, up 2.4%, 2.4% on a year over year basis. We got data on automobile sales last week for the month of June. The annualized rate of auto sales rose to almost 16 million, 15.7 million. That was ahead of expectations. And this is interesting. You know, you, you see here where we're sort of above 16 million when the economy's strong and healthy. Uh, we get the recession related to COVID. We get the big slowdown related to the lack of computer chips and the supply chain issues from 2021, slow and steady coming back. But remember, you know, a lot of automobile purchases are based on interest rates and payments. And this underlies the strength in this economy with interest rates being far higher than they've been in better part of a decade that we're getting close to back to that 16 plus million pace for auto sales. So, Interesting, strong read uh, there ahead of consensus estimates of 15.4 million. Moving on to labor, you really can't have a deep recession uh, without loss of jobs. And thankfully, really thankfully, we're not getting that. Weekly initial claims for unemployment rose from 236,000 to 248,000. Below 300,000 is still an economy that's creating jobs on a net basis every month. Uh, continuing claims fell, you know, real, guess unchanged really, 173 to 172. But we got two differing reports from the two big reporters on how we did for the month. Let's start with ADP. Automatic Data Processing, which is a payroll company, has a statistical methodology to estimate how many jobs were created in the U.S. economy. They say that private payrolls almost, well, they more than doubled the estimate of 225,000 growth to 497,000 in June. This is the biggest gain since February of 22. You got to go all the way back here to February of 22 to see anything this close. That's on top of a healthy gain in May. They say the service sector added 373,000. And even goods producing jobs were added, added, uh, added 124,000. So then the market started saying, wow, this is inflationary. Too many jobs are being added. It's going to put upper pressure on wages. The Fed's going to have to keep raising interest rates. And then, of course, two days later, 
we got the report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that said, well, no, we think the economy added 209,000. The question, of course, is who's right? The answer is always that they're both right. They use different statistical methods to estimate. That's why we look at both of them. They tend to converge over time. Uh, big outline months can often be corrected. So I wouldn't read too much into it and say, hey, one's right and one's wrong. It's just sort of the way it goes. June non-farm payrolls, according to the BLS, were up 209,000, a little below estimate. So that took some of that inflation Fed rate hiking fear out just literally the next day or two days later. Unemployment rate steady at 3.6%, as was labor force participation. And average hourly earnings are growing. You know, the great promise of American capitalism and our system and our way of life is that the working class, the working people, the wage earners should have greater wealth as time goes by. Capitalism is supposed to create wealth throughout the economy. And in our country's history, we've seen that over and over again. And I bring it up because there's always talk around when average hourly earnings are going up and real earnings are up, say, 4% on a year-over-year basis. They say it's unsustainable, it's going to kill profit margins, and the market's going to go down. I don't think so. What it really does is it gives more purchasing power and a higher standard of living and a higher quality of life to the American worker. When the American worker has more income, the American worker can spend more, buy more, invest more, spend more on their health care to live longer eat better, better quality foods, products, services, travel, leisure, entertainment, the list goes on and on. So a higher real wage for American workers is not necessarily inflationary. It can have inflationary pressures, which drives American companies to just innovate further. And that's where we're going now with things like artificial intelligence. It's exciting. It's good to see. It's great. Moving on, job openings report, the JOLTS report for May shows we have 10 point, or excuse me, 9.8 million. That's down from 10.3 million. Uh, that's still far more than we have unemployed or marginally employed, which is in the 6 million range. So we, that gap is still, again, I don't think it's necessarily inflationary as much as it's the great promise of American capitalism. More demand for labor than labor that exists, drives up real wages. It has a trickle up effect, a wealth effect. It is not a negative for the US economy. Trade uh, deficit for the month of May fell from 74 billion to 69 billion. That's still big. Remember trade deficits subtract from GDP, imports down 2%, exports down about eight tenths of 1%. So what do we do now? We're through the second quarter, but now we have to get the earnings for the second. So the market focus starting this week will turn to earnings. Now, the last couple of quarters, the markets have rallied because analysts and pessimists have also, oh, gosh, earnings are going to get hurt, rising wages, different things, inflationary pressures in the economy. You can't pass it through. Manufacturing's in a bit of a slump. But the stocks keep rallying and the earnings estimates haven't been going down. You can see by this graph, Bloomberg estimated earnings per share forward blended 12 months estimates. Sure, it topped out at 238 back in May and it declined all the way down to 222, 223 
um, this May of 22 rather, and then all the way into March of 2023, but it's been climbing ever since. So this week we will get the first companies begin to announce. You know, financials are always front and center the first week of earnings season. We've got Citi this week, we've got BlackRock, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, all those report this week and that'll set the tone for the earnings season. Some strategists, some analysts are concerned that we can't have better than feared earnings. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think we will have better than feared earnings and it all comes down to what will the guidance be? What will the guidance be for the forward quarters? I've said that the last couple of quarters, but I think it's true again this quarter. The other thing that's having an impact on markets are expectations for the Fed. What's the Fed going to do? And it's just amazing that the markets rallied when we said, hey, that's it, the Fed is done. They have paused, they're not going to be hiking rates. And suddenly the futures market says, we will get one more 25 basis point hike. Whether it comes to July 26th, about a 90% chance, so pretty good. They're saying it's 100% chance we have it by the September 20th. So if they do it at 726 or 920, either way, and there's even a small chance we get two 25 basis point hikes now. The market still believes by this time next year, economy will have slowed considerably and we'll be getting rate cuts and the Fed funds rate will be headed lower. Interesting that even now we rallied when we thought the Fed wasn't going to hike rates, and now we're rallying when we think the Fed is going to uh, hike rates. Interesting, interesting development in the market. The other thing that's happening is inflation expectations are continuing to decline, just not quite enough. And that's why the Fed is probably going to raise rates, whether it's July or September. I don't know. I would think it would be September, but we'll see. These are the break-even rates in the, in the market trading as of this morning. The two-year break-even is the lowest. So the, so the market is expecting inflation to hit almost just above 2% within the next two years. Five years, just a little bit higher, and the 10 years, just a little bit higher. And what the market really wants to see is something like we had back here at 18 and 19, where the inflation expectations are somewhat below the Fed's 2% target for inflation. We had this big run up on the money supply growth. We know that um, we, you know, excessive monetary, excessive fiscal stimulus, all of that because of COVID all the way back down here now, but still just a little bit further to go. To go. The Fed really wants to see that get below that 2% line that I've drawn on the graph for you here. And, but you know, the Fed is aggressively fighting inflation. We have to give them credit. They have, increased the Fed funds rate significantly. Is it in restrictive territory? Maybe. But, you know, if, if printing money causes inflation, deprinting money should be deflationary, right? Let's start with, with how much money is out there as a percentage of GDP. The Fed's balance sheet as a percentage of GDP in February of 22 was 37 and a half. We're down to 32.2. And the Fed is continuing to run assets off its balance sheet, which on its own, ceteris paribus, everything else equal in the economy, is disinflationary, if not deflationary, reducing the amount of money and money supply available in the economy. So they are doing what they need to do. They're so aggressive about it that the amount of money in the economy for the first time in history 
is negative on a year-over-year basis, and it has been that way since about Thanksgiving. Now, we all know inflation, you know, we need to grow our money supply every year to facilitate the growth of the economy. Some people would argue if you want your economy to grow 2 to 3% a year, you should just automate the growth of the money supply at 2 to 3%. It's one of the reasons we went off the gold standard. There wasn't enough gold to facilitate the success, the great success and growth of the U.S. economy. But then, because of COVID, the Federal Reserve decided to massively increase the money supply. We had a one-year increase in the money supply, more than 25% back during COVID to try to stimulate the economy. But they've quickly begun to pull that out. And now the year-over-year growth in the money supply has actually turned negative. That's never happened before. Certainly the right thing to do to address the inflationary uh, problem that crept up because of this. Now, you can argue this was too much. That'd certainly be a good argument. Uh, but they are doing the right thing in trying to correct it. Economic data this week, we've got wholesale inventories, consumer credit, small business optimism. But the one that everybody's watching, along with those earnings reports that are coming this week, it's all about CPI on Wednesday, PPI on Tuesday. Uh, and import and export prices, not so much. Consumer sentiment, yes, a little bit. Fed's beige book ahead of the July meeting, yes, important. Earnings, Pepsi, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, Delta, that's UNH, sorry, United Healthcare, BlackRock, and Citibank all this week. Don't forget, this is available subscription, slides, charts, graphs, just email info at efficient portfolios or tell your smart device to play Herb Morgan's podcast. Thank you, everybody. I'll be back to you again next Monday. Thank you for listening to Slaying Bulls and Bears. If you'd like to download the slides for this week's podcast, go to www.efficient-portfolios.com and join our mailing list. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, rate us online, and share with a friend if you found this helpful. See you next week.